podcast. The book of Acts picks up right where the four gospels leave off. The risen Christ commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news. Acts tells us exactly how that happened, how the soul-saving message of the gospel spread throughout the entire Roman Empire in less than 30 years. Through enormous obstacles and without many resources, proven leadership, or modern technologies, these early Christians turned the world upside down because they had the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. This is their story. Let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this amazing book. All right, happy church, it's that time. Let's get started. All right, get settled in your seats. You can get settled in your seats now. It is that time to start. And we're going to go to the Lord with a word of prayer now, Father God, as we see the church, the early church getting organized with all the wisdom and insight in this passage here where we learn about the differences between God-called deacons and the practical side of ministry and also elders and our responsibility. Each member of your body gifted. You've given a gift to every Christian in the context of how they can serve and encourage the church body. So this is a passage about all of us, God. We thank you for giving us insight in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You've heard the little rhyme that goes, to dwell above with those we love, oh, what future glory, but to dwell below with those we know, well, that's a different story. (laughs) And you did like it better than first service. I knew you would. Now, so we laugh. Why do we laugh? Because we know how difficult it can be to get along with those we know here below. (laughs) And so uh, we're not the only ones who know how difficult people can be. Satan, the adversary, which is what Satan means, enemy or adversary, he knows about it too. And here in Acts chapter 6 with the early church still in its seedling form, vulnerable. He's going to take advantage of that little propensity of ours to not get along, to be difficult, offensive, and self-centered. And he's going to try to create a church split that would be deadly here in Acts chapter 6. And by the way, we really don't really need his help to offend each other. (laughs) We're, We're really good at it on our own. Amen? Sadly, sinners that we are. But if we're dumb enough to give him, give him an inch, he will take his proverbial mile. And so that is what we're going to see him try to do uh, here in Acts chapter 6, where the honeymoon phase is coming to a close. Because uh, up until now, all we've heard is these kind of intimidating reports about how they're sharing with one another over-the-top generosity. Nobody's in need. Everybody loves everybody. It's stars in the eyes. And 
just really, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching of the word of God. Uh, there's prayer everywhere. God is intervening with miraculous uh, signs and wonders. Lives are being transformed. I mean, what more can you want? And the Lord is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. And so with church growth, there are advantages, of course, right? Uh, but there's also liabilities, because when you increase the number of people, you increase the number of potential problems. And so we're going to see uh, that happen here this morning. I guess that's why you call it Growing Pains, right? In fact, that might be a good uh, title for this morning's message, Growing Pains. And so the gospel is advancing there rapidly. And this is going to make God's enemy very uncomfortable. As I've been saying, souls are escaping his clutches. The truth is being made known. People are being reconciled to God and then joining in the effort to seek and save the lost. This is not good from the devil's point of view. So the roaring lion, uh, lowercase, because he imitates the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's the devil is also called a ravenous beast of a lion on the prowl there in the temple courts. Man, looking for a way to destroy the church while it's in its infancy stages. He's been busy. We've seen his strategies. The first one was to direct force with persecutions from the authorities, uh, trying to shut them down or threaten their lives. And then next, he tried to corrupt the church from within by slipping the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira into the mix. But God made quick business of that and them. And then, uh, you know, he, the church continues to thrive. So what's the devil to do? And so he's come up with perhaps the most clever and lethal strategy uh, yet here. He's going to try to divide and distract. Those are two weapons in his arsenal that we're going to see here. He's going to try to exploit the misunderstandings that always happen in a large group of people. And he's going to try to fan those offenses into a wildfire and burn the place down. Because a church that's filled with divided people with hurt feelings, holding grudges, being bitter and resentful, you walk in, it's like a, a refrigerator, and you feel the vibe. That's not a church the devil has to worry about. Because that church is not really a church in the biblical definition of uh, the meaning there. And so two things to watch for. Now, here, just to overview, a group of older ladies in the church, widows, they're squabbling, there's been offenses, they're at odds with each other, and that's uh, a real danger. There's danger of division, church split. On top of that, and the devil just, you know, he's a multitasker, you know, so he's going to uh, tempt the apostles to fix the problem and get distracted away from their first responsibility, which is to give themselves fully, full time, over to the word of God, the ministry of teaching and preaching. And that would be a disaster as well. Weak preaching means a weak church. It's a recipe uh, for destruction. And so watch for division, watch for distraction. We'll get underway at verse 1. In those days that the church is flourishing, 
God is at work. When the number of disciples, from a word where we get the word Matthew, uh, disciples, to learn, to be a learner. When the disciples were growing and increasing, the church is growing, the Grecian Jews, the Greek Jews, among them complained against the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So they have a Young and Hearts ministry. Uh, it's actually a benevolence ministry, which most churches and synagogues to this day, ours included, have and operate. So verse 2, the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And so he says, brothers, choose seven men from among you with good reputations, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man you're going to hear about in the coming chapters, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. So all of these are Jews. Whether they speak Hebrew or Greek in the story, they share the DNA. They're Jews by race, except Nick. Nick is a Gentile who converted, just to be clear. Uh, moving on. They presented, so the staff guys, these, uh, the, 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 the Hebrew-speaking staff, uh, who got delegated this responsibility, present these seven men to the apostles who prayed and had an ordination service of sorts, laid their hands on them. So when you do things God's way, the word of God spreads and the number of disciples in Jerusalem even became more and a large number of priests. They're the Sadducees. Sadducees don't get saved. They just try to come and, and persecute, you know? So this is a, a real live miracle there. Uh, a bunch of Sadducees became obedient to the faith. What a great way to describe believing in God. No, it's not just believing in God. There's some evidence. It's called a changed life. So we'll go back to that opening couple verses and note takers, you can call it the problem manifests, okay? Division and distraction, as I've already said. And there is a solution, and uh, we'll get to that too. But a lot to say about these opening two verses. So the church is getting organized. We've seen it already. I mean, I run into unbelievers all the time who love to say the reason they don't go to church is because they may believe in God, but they're not much for organized religion. To which I always say, oh, you like your religion unorganized, <laughs> right? So you want to walk into a place and there's just chaos, right? And that's what you look for in a church. I want my religion not organized where everything's done decently and in order because there's a decent and orderly God 
uh, who, who wants us to be organized, but yeah. No, so the church, they already know how many got saved. How do you know the number? 3,000 and 2,000. They counted them, right? And who's counting? There's, there's staff. There's guys who, who are working together with protocols. Somebody confesses uh, belief in Christ. What happens? Then now you're baptized. And they have a formula for baptism. They have policies in place. The monies and goods and tithing. It's, it's a, uh, we saw it already. They're, they're, they're bringing donations to the church to support the work of the gospel. And the leaders are handling all of that. Sin is confronted and dealt with in the congregation. And so now, with time, you're just going to see more and more detail of organization of the church ministry as God wants it to be organized. And here, now, differing roles, let's say that, and, and giftings and callings in the church. And we all got to be where God has created us to be. He calls us a body. He uses the analogy of a body a human body. And he says, every one of you are a part of that body as God has determined. And so you have a function. And so we find our gifts, our calling. It's often what you're really good at and what, what, what you're passionate about oftentimes. And you play your part. It's so important. And so now we're starting to see the need is presenting to us uh, a need for guys to offload the elders, you can call them elders, pastors, or overseers, it's the same word, to offload the guys who do, uh, who are responsible for the spiritual oversight, the teaching and the preaching of the word, uh, to offload all of the other details and to use their gifts and abilities to uh, do what the church requires. They're both equally important ministries. And so the potential church split is happening here. We've got to talk about this. Uh, and it's serious. What did Jesus tell us? Kingdom divided against a kingdom, doomed to destruction. And when he says nation against nation, he uses the word ethnos, where we get the word ethnicities. And so this is a problem of ethnicities, ethnic groups. There are both Jews, both sides are Jews, DNA, right? But one group are from other countries that emigrated from those countries because they're Jews and they want to be in Israel, in Jerusalem. So they come in as Jews, they keep a kosher table, they keep the holidays. They practice Judaism in their own country, in that nation. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2, those who were visiting Jerusalem at Passover were from, and I'm quoting Acts 2, every nation under the sun. And so the Hebrew Jews were given the gift of tongues to speak in foreign languages uh, and to be able to speak to the Jews who speak other languages, all Jews, all DNA, all the same, but different ethnicities, right? There were Jews who were coming from Iran, Jews who were coming from Turkey, Jews who were coming from all over the place. And so uh, the Greek-speaking ones who immigrated 
to Jerusalem have a complaint. And that's an ugly word. In the Greek, it's linked to murmur. It's one of those, you've heard the word onomatopoeia. It, it, it uses, it's used for words that sound like the word they're trying to define, like buzz or hiss, right? So this word is ugly in the Greek. It's nasty. And what it means is that low hum of a roar of complaining, like, you know, I practiced that. It didn't go over very well. (laughs) I don't know how you spell, you know, but it's ugly, all right? To Jewish listeners, the word will tie them back to the Old Testament and how destructive murmuring or grumbling can be. We tend to think of, oh, it's bickering, complaining a little bit, the human condition. Who doesn't do that? We think lightly of it because we do it all the time. But when you said uh, there's a complaint, there's a murmur, there's a going on in the church, they, they, they stopped breathing because they remembered when the con- and, and the Old Testament people of God are called the congregation of God. The congregation of God was murmuring in Exodus, where is it, 16, because they got tired of what was on the menu. God was baking up bread and sending it down express for them every morning. They were eating the bread of heaven called manna, which means, what is it? (laughs) And they said, you know what, God? (laughs) We're sick of this stuff. Every day, manna, manna, manna. We want some meat on the menu. They were murmuring. They were grumbling. And a lot of them didn't live to talk about it. And so everybody's like, wow, bickering's a big deal. So uh, and what does Hebrews say? Uh, or it's, it's actually Galatians. Hebrews also talks about it. But he says, listen, if you're bickering, biting, and devouring one another, watch out because you're going to destroy each other. And that's what's going on here. It's not just, oh, they're having a little disagreement. You know how ladies can be, or guys can be. (laughs) That was close. (laughs) I know how to save myself. I'm used to this. Okay. Um, uh, Yeah, so the idea here at Calvary Chapel Jerusalem is divisiveness, gossip, taking sides, building walls, withdrawing, and being bitter. Okay. Let's talk about, let me give you a, a lesson in Jewish life, Jewish life 101, all right? Greek Jews and Hebrew Jews, what's going on? Well, I already kind of explained it a little bit, but when you say somebody's Jewish, you mean one of two things. You mean either they have DNA that unites them together as an ethnicity, as Jews related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, for example, I've told you before, my ancestry uh, DNA came back 70% Ashkenazi Jew. That's what it says. Ashkenazi means European. So my ancestors were Jewish. Now, for example, my social studies teacher in high school said, I want you to draw a family crest. So I came home knowing my grandparents were from Poland. I'm making a family shield with a big P on it. My dad saw it. My dad says, what is that? I said, it's a family crest, P for Poland. And he came unglued. (laughs) He's like, we're not Poles. 
Okay, Polish people are called Poles. (laughs) We're not Poles. We're Jews who lived in Poland. There's a difference. I'm like, Dad, we don't go to synagogue. He goes, it doesn't matter. He says, racially, we're Jews. Now, when you say Jewish, it can also mean the way you practice. It's called the Jewish religion, which is called Judaism. But you can be a DNA Jew and not be a religious Jew. You see, I just ran into somebody. I don't know how it happens, but we started talking about the Lord at Whole Foods. (laughs) And she says, oh, I'm a Jew. And I said, so am I. I'm a Christian. She goes, well, I'm a Buddhist. So she's a DNA Jew who loves Buddha. That's not a good mix. I don't know. I didn't recommend it that she continue doing that. But yeah, so, okay, do you get it? The Jews, so you got two groups. The Jews born in Jerusalem speak their mother tongue. Aramaic is early Hebrew. And by the way, Hebrew, Hebrew can be both. And Abraham was a Hebrew. He's the first Hebrew. It means to come from over the river because he crossed the river, right, Euphrates. So he's the first Hebrew, but you can also speak Hebrew. You see, so you can be the person, like Spanish. You can be Spanish and speak Spanish, right? There you go. So you got the two groups, and there's some rivalry with those who were born and raised in Iran, but they're totally Jews, and when they got older, which a lot of them did, they want to die in the homeland, and they want to be buried in Jerusalem to this day, facing east. Because in the Old Testament, it says Messiah comes from the east. And to this day, check out the cemeteries around here. They're facing, the old school ones, are the, all the tombstones face east. I didn't even know that. I threw that in for free. <laughs> so there you go. So there's some rivalry going on there. The Jews got displaced the 8th and 6th centuries before Christ. Assyria came in the first time, took POWs from the north, gone. Just like God told them, look, you get the promised land, but you know what? I'm going to evict you if you're going to bite the hand that feeds. So I'm going to evict you. I'll bring you all back, but I'm going to kick you out of the promised land. So, So in 565, the final army from Babylon came in and took the rest of them removed the Jews and scattered them all over the place, which was God's way of evangelizing the world to show that there's one God and all these writings about Messiah and all of that. And so uh, these Jews are the ones moving back, and things are not going very well. So somehow, real or or perceived, the Greek-speaking ladies are feeling like second-class citizens. It would be like, uh, and this is what I used for service, the Sofrancos, the Italians, going over, they don't speak a lick of Italian, moving to Italy and sitting down, Rose one day, inviting our next-door neighbor who's a born Italian, a native-born Italian. And she has her over and she says, "This this is the pasta, we've been cooking it for generations. And the Italian-born says, oh, we don't use those spices here in Italy. And then Rose would say, "Uh, well, maybe you should. (laughs) 
And so there's a little bit of that going on. So second, second service, I see the Sofrancos. And I go up and I said, hey, I use you. You are a perfect illustration. Italians going over there and da-da-da-da. She goes, we're not Italian. What, what, what are you talking about? I have misled an entire service. But you got the point. Let me swap it out to uh, Texas bumper stickers for you. One bumper sticker says, native born and proud. That's the thing, the homegrown team. There it is. We're the real thing. We were born here. My grandfather speaks like a Texan, right? <laughs> Native born. The other bumper stickers would be, I'm not from Texas, but I got here as quick as I could. <laughs> Please. <laughs> so, so this is what's going on at Calvary Chapel, Jerusalem. It's back and forth. It's like, oh. Uh, yeah, you eat kosher. Yes, we do. But in, in our matzah ball soup, we do it this way. And the, the Hebrew ladies are saying, well, let's, let, let me show you the original way it was meant to be. You know, And so <laughs> there was that kind of thing. So one writer said, given the beautiful reports leading up to this squabble, the offense is perceived rather than intentional. Nobody's doing something wrong and saying, you speak Greek, back to the line. You know, no, it, it doesn't sound like that. It's possible, but uh, it doesn't sound that way. John MacArthur said, listen, a church of that size, you're going to have offenses that happen. Somebody is going to get overlooked. Something's bound to go wrong in a busy, active ministry Someone's not going to get greeted. Someone's need is going to go unmet. Someone's going to get overlooked. Uh, someone's not going to get the memo. You know, someone's email is going to get buried. Someone's phone call is not going to be uh, returned. And then Satan comes in and goes, let's kind of milk this. Because Satan's motto is, why have a molehill when you can have a mountain? I just read somewhere again of some silly thing that caused a divorce. And then um, there's this old story as well, and it's true, uh, of some couple. They had really no problems in their marriage to speak of, just normal problems. And there was a misunderstanding about what she wanted done with the leftovers. She wanted to save them for the dog, and the husband ate them. And she said, I've asked you three times about this. You keep on doing it. You know what? And they had a huge fight. And they stopped speaking to each other for about three or four or five days, maybe a week. They were just super, just mad, milking it. And whew, somebody's in there blowing it up. You know, she always and he never, right? The secretary caught wind of how depressed he had been and tried to cheer him up and said, let's go out for dinner. They got divorced. And he ended up with her. Over what? Leftovers. <laughs> leftovers. Leftovers. And that's what my friend, trust me on this. And so don't, don't be thinking 
this is just some bunch of ladies just, you know, come on, get over it. They're talking recipes or, oh, those colors, we don't wear those colors here. Or, well, yeah, you know, well, you should because the color, colors you have are drab, you know, who knows what's going on there. So, yeah, to fix the problem, here's it. The bottom line is they're saying the Hebrew women, the line moves, no problem. Miriam's sack of lentils, oy vey, it's this much, right? But, uh, you know, let's pick a foreign name, Karen. <laughs> and you got to admit, it's perfect for the part, all right? Karen says, Miriam's sack is like she has to, oy vey, like this. And my sack, you know, it's like this. Why? Because I'm a Greek speaker. Oh, that's, come on, just keep thinking that. Repeat it over and over again. The whole world's out to get you. Everyone hates you. I was going to say something else, but the Lord went, oh, no. All right. The fact, uh, okay, to fix the squabble, before I end up preaching the whole sermon on verse 1, the, to fix the squabble problem, the devil then proposes, uh, the apostles wisely resist it, the temptation to be sucked into that mess, uh, the, to take charge and fix it and run a very important ministry, uh, but at the expense of preaching the word of God. Well, Peter knows how time-consuming it is, and so he's going to delegate the task of finding them to delegate a task to. I love that. It's not a dictatorship. It's like, let's get people involved uh, because the time it will take for us to find the guys is still going to drain us of time. Why? Anybody can do that, but, and we'll tell them what to look for. There are three important qualifications, right? But why does Satan want them to be distracted from their primary calling? Because a weak pulpit will be a weak church. If this is serving up empty calories, right? Here's your morning food, a bowl of um, fruity pebbles and some skim milk. Yeah, it was right. <laughs> and then what do you get in the pews? You know, I told one pastor, he goes, wow, you preach for almost an hour. I go, yeah, and we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. He goes, wow, you're a Bible teaching church. And I said, yeah. <laughs> We are. And I said, I'll tell you what, part of the reason I do it is self-preservation. Because when you preach the full counsel of God and you just cram it out as much as they can humanly take and throw everything in st and spend 20 hours a week on every Sunday sermon, when you do that, they're more normal. They're more... I didn't mean that. <laughs> They're healthier, they replicate, they reproduce. Their marriages are, are a little bit more stable. Their friendships are a little bit stronger. They run their businesses a little bit more honestly. They have the fear of the Lord because they went into church and they got something. They didn't get a funny, cute story. They didn't get a topic. They didn't get self-help lessons. Although there's a lot of good that happens that way as well. And so the devil just wants them to be concerned with things that other men can do. Somebody said this. If the devil can keep a pastor doing good things instead of the best thing, the thing which he's called to do and gifted to do, the 
adversary can damage the entire flock, the spiritual well-being of thousands of people. In this case, there's thousands there. By cutting off their supply line, by distracting the pastors from being effective communicators of God's word. And what, but talk about priority. Pretty clear. Jesus said, Peter, you love me? There's one thing I really want you to do. One thing, Peter, if you love me, you'll do one thing, man. So listen up. And I'm going to say it three times. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. You get it, Peter? And Peter says here, got it. I got to be a preacher and a teacher of God's word. Let's find fully qualified men who must qualify to work, let's call it the kitchen or benevolence ministry, in the same way a pastor has to qualify with integrity. There are 15 adjectives given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to qualify for a pastor. And the same ones are used to qualify to wait the tables. The ministry of the word, the ministry of the tables, the ministry of the coffee making, the ministry of the preaching of the word of God. There's an extension. There's a similar calling of God for whatever you do to be holy and upright and to be uh, solely sold out for the Lord, no matter what you do in the church. Amen? Amen. So the devil's hoping to keep uh, them <laughs> distracted uh, with important things, too busy to study or to pray. And so, um, yes, that's what the, uh, yeah, okay, you get it. We've already been through this. Very good. All right, so the practical matters are never beneath a pastor. A pastor who thinks it is beneath him to do some of the practical things, that's a problem. Pastors do deacon work and deacon, deacons do pastor's work as well. As we see, Stephen and Philip are unbelievable gifted evangelists and preachers. Stephen is going to preach the longest sermon in the Bible except Jesus' uh, sermon on Matthew uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so, yeah, we take out the trash if the deacons let us. You know, if I pick up trash, they're all over me. What are you doing picking up trash? It's like, I can, I can take the trash out, you see? And in smaller churches, pastors have to do everything sometimes. And sometimes it's the pastor's neurotic problem that he has to do everything. He's not supposed to do that. He has one job that's most important. And all the other things, yes, are also important. And he does a lot of counseling and visiting of the sick and outreaches and all of that. But he does have a priority, that's for sure. And so uh, Peter says, it's, it would it be good or wise stewardship? Let's move on. You've got the rest of the uh, verse there. We'll talk about this. So now the proposal, I love it. Romans chapter 8, 28, to the rescue again. God works all things together for good. And here he's using the devil's um, attack for something good, the beautiful revelation of of different responsibilities and callings in the body of Christ, how we all work together. And it's not just not pastors and deacons. It's every single one of us has a gift and a calling and a fit in the body. And so if the, if the widows weren't offended, we wouldn't have this beautiful chapter uh, in the Bible. So 
Yes, indeed. So we, we, I've been talking elders and deacons, and so interestingly, verse 1 has the, it, it's, it's like it's saying the deaconing of the word. The deaconing means serving or ministry, all right? And then in verse 4, the deaconing of the tables, and so they are of equal importance to God. Now the elder, the two offices, the elder slash overseer slash pastor in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, all three words are used interchangeably. So you can call me a pastor or an elder or an overseer. We, uh, the English-speaking world uses pastor mostly, and other denominations may use elder or bishop. Bishop is for overseer. Uh, you, you see, and we've come to identify the elders as those who have spiritual oversight and the preaching and teaching and the deacons to serve. And, uh, and, and uh, the word means to, it has a, uh, a nuance of waiting tables or kicking up dust because they're always busy fighting fires and helping people and helping out. And so, yeah. So these offices will become more clear in First Timothy and uh, chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And so uh, well, we need seven distinguished men. And, there's, uh, and first of all, I love that they're not dictators. They're not lording over. They're just saying, you guys handle this, and we'll give you some guidelines. And then brothers starts to, it's like a mini sermon in one word. Brothers, we're brothers. We share the same father. We have the same purpose. We have the same love in our hearts. We have the same former destiny, hell. And now we've got a new destiny, heaven. We're brothers. We're one in Christ. Come on, <laughs> with one word, right? Brothers, let's take care of this. And now notice the criteria for serving in the back with the old ladies, older women, sorry. <laughs> the criterion is not an academic. Make sure you find seven guys with with letters after their names, or business acumen, or hip and cool, or financial success, or administration skills. Nothing wrong with any of that, except the hip and cool. Um, but <laughs> just a joke. Um, higher, the higher priority is integrity. We want to find uh, godly men. Let's talk about that. All right. First, good reputation. So mention his name. And everybody goes, great guy, loves the Lord. Wow, and he's got a couple stories. I remember what, yeah, great guy. The Bible says, listen, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor with that name better than silver or gold. Why is that? You can be well off financially, and nobody wants to be around you because you're, you act like a loser. All right. So if you have a bad reputation because nobody can trust you, you're irresponsible, you lie, you gossip, and everybody knows it. They say the name and everybody just kind of like, yeah, yeah, he's got a lot of issues, right? So what good is your money? What good is anything if nobody wants to be around you and can trust you? Right? So a good name is everything. And so they want to make sure that he has a good name. Not only in the church, but what is the market that he always goes to? What do they say about him? And, and what does his doctor or his dentist say about him, right? That's important. 
And then second thing, full of the Holy Spirit, something that the New Testament calls us to continually ask for. And all it means is that, as I've said before, not that you have more of the Spirit, but that the Spirit is more of you. It's kind of John the Baptist's theology when he says, I need to decrease. He needs to increase if this is ever going to work. Right? But we can't live the Christian life without being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, somebody who thinks, man, I don't know about just being like sold out and on fire for God and filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, they have the wrong image of that. They just think of somebody as a religious, socially awkward weirdo who just walks around, just, all, just every other word is Jesus, you know. Uh, no. To be Christ-like is to be like Christ and How did the world around Christ see Christ? (laughs) They liked him. Normal people liked him. They invited him to weddings. They they had backyard barbecues with with really, um, you know, unsavory people. Liked him. They were attracted to him. So rather than thinking, well, I wouldn't want to be around that religious person, they're like, oh, Jesus? Yeah, let's go. There was something disarming, something warm and inviting and natural and real and genuine that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are who God made you to be. It's not something you you need to say, oh, you know, you you have to carry your Bible everywhere you go and be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I think I know what they're trying to say by that. It's not in the Bible, but it can be true. And that's why he's saying, and make sure he has wisdom. I love that. It's like, isn't that a repetition if you're full of the Holy Spirit? He has wisdom. So why do you have to say, and wisdom? Because there's a zeal without knowledge. There's just love for God. Like, oh, they really, really love God. But they're not very wise. Like the guy who says, I love my neighbor so much, God. I want him to come to know you. So every morning at the crack of dawn, I'm going to bless him. You know. So at 6 a.m., I yell into his windows, Good morning, and God bless you, neighbor. Every morning, 6 a.m., God, because you know, I love him and I love you, and I want to be a blessing. And then the Bible says in Proverbs, he sees your blessing as a curse. The neighbor. The neighbor's like, please stop blessing me. Right? So that's what the wisdom. Now, who needs wisdom as a man going in to a bunch of women who are not getting along with each other. <laughs> Do you not see why he says, and wisdom, <laughs> oh, 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 make sure he has wisdom. You say the wrong thing. Listen, some of this is like unintended, and they'll tell the story, and the guy will say, well, they didn't mean it that way. Oh, you don't say that to someone. Who, uh, an unintended offense is an offense. It's still felt as an offense, and marriages, like, husbands, listen up. Well, I didn't mean it that way. Oh, you're mistaken. And so, yeah, so there, there's no offense. Oh, no, you just offended her again. <laughs> just apologize. Yeah, but it wasn't even a real offense. Just apologize. What's the problem? Or what do you lose by saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, so, I'm just sorry. I'm sorry you're offended. I'm sorry you're hurt. I'm sorry you're, I, I did something that caused you some pain, even though I didn't mean it. 
and it's all in your head. <laughs> Don't say that. What do you mean you're telling Barb? Now I'm offended. Yeah, you gotta have wisdom. You gotta, you gotta have wisdom. All right. Look, look at the names. You wanna, you wanna see wisdom. You wanna see love. You wanna see reasonableness. You wanna see God at work. Look at the list of names. Who do they pick? Greek speaker, Greek speaker, Greek speaker, Greek speaker, Greek speaker, Greek speaker, Greek speaker. All seven are foreigners. All. Seven. They had options they could have done. Let's split it in half and show them how equitable we could be. Look, we got half and half, but you can't do that because you'd have to kill somebody <laughs> and split them in half because I don't think it, yeah, you could have three and a half ones. Yeah, doesn't work that way. You, you, they could have said, you know what, it must be like over the top. Let's do seven Greek boys and one Jewish boy, one Hebrew boy. Because they're all Jews, right? No, they didn't do that. They didn't say, oh, we need one on the board who can kind of keep an eye on those Greek speakers. <laughs> ah, let's blow their minds and give them seven sons and grandsons type men who speak their language, who know what they feel like because they are them. <laughs> Only they're men now in the church in charge, seven, to share the load, the responsibility. Maybe one guy for each day of the week because that's how it worked that way. Just, just what an example of trusting God, bending over backwards, didn't have to do that, but just like over the top, trusting God. Perhaps with some risk to yourself in a way, but that doesn't happen here. Uh, James tells us the wisdom that comes from above is pure, peaceable, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, and full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So we got an ordination here, they're presented right, to the apostles who are like great guys. And uh, now the, the ordination service. So laying on of hands to Jewish people is setting somebody apart for a ministry. That's what happened in the Old Testament. But it also did something very important. It conferred the authority, delegated as it was, from the apostles to the deacons. In other words, when the deacon was out calling the shots, in the midst of the fires out there, they, the church saw this, and it would be like Pastor Peter telling you to do so-and-so because he's an extension of the apostolic ministry by extension of the hands as a symbol of that. And so it gives affirmation to the guys, it gives affirmation to the church, it gives them understanding and confidence to do their job. And, and that's the thing. That's the thing. The person who's making the coffee is an extension of my ministry here. That's why there can be problems if somebody's greeting and, and they don't have wisdom. It's an extension of the pastor's ministry out there. Everybody on the platform... Uh, 
They have to, we ask them about their social media sites, their Facebook pages, their postings. We ask them about alcohol. We ask them uh, about everything. Why? They're not doing their own thing. They're an extension of me. And sometimes they don't understand that. They're just like, I'm the keyboard player. <laughs> I come and go, I play the keys. That's that. No, you don't. Not here. Not here. And so does everybody, is everybody perfect here? No, including me. Right? But we're in 100%. We try to live above reproach, and that's one of the um, qualifications given us. We're extensions of one another. And just, you know, just so you know, let's not just blame somebody or, or talk about somebody who's doing a, a visible ministry here. Let's talk about you. You get in trouble. They find out you're from the rock. And then you join the club as a press Democrat member. <laughs> I, was, I was leading to, and then the papers get a hold of that. And then you're in the paper. And then I thought, like you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, but yeah, you know, you just, you represent. And now I'm going to take this to a new level. Oh, worse than anything I just said. Buckle your seatbelt. You represent God. Everything you do. That's why the Bible says whatever you do, in word or deed, do it for the glory of God because you represent him. And the second commandment, whichever commandment it is, that says thou shalt not use my name, mis uh, use my name in vain, does not mean what you think it means. Whoops. That's included but what it really means is do not misrepresent me by saying I belong to God and then live like you don't. That's what that means. The name is the person you're, misre you're, you're misrepresenting him. That's a commandment. And so uh, the deacons are not to do that. The pastors are not to do that. And the individual gifted, you have a gift you have something that contributes to this place. And God will show you. And sometimes you just start volunteering and it just happens and God shows you. I do want to close out with this because this is unbelievable to me. That the Sadducees, next, uh, the Sadducees, the large number of Sadducees get saved. First of all, first thing, as I alluded to already, they didn't just say, hey, we believe in God. No, the way it's phrased is they became obedient to the faith. In other words, you could look at his life, like James says, stop telling me you're a Christian. Show me you're a Christian. Show me by your good deeds, your life, your change, your priorities, how you spend your money, how you use, you use your language, your thought life, <laughs> changes, your friends, you have, the places you go. They became obedient to the faith. There's a lot of believers who are not obedient to the faith, which says one thing. You're not a believer. If you're a believer, you're obedient. You're not perfect. But there's been a life change. You don't do drugs anymore. You don't get drunk anymore. You're not a big fat liar all the time. You're not all about you, 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 you. Because you become obedient to the gospel and to the Lord. Amen? And there's something that happened in this subtle, lackluster 
ordination service, something about this passage that converts a whole bunch of Sadducees, the guys who were the enemies in the story, the guys who condemned Jesus to death, the guys who had the skin flailed off of Peter, James, and John's back. That's them, and they get saved. Why now? They just saw God at work in his people, and it was the last straw, the wisdom of the seven guys, the love, the care for one another. They couldn't resist it anymore. They had it. They're like, you know what? I'm done fighting this. Sign me up. Sign me up. And that got me started thinking, because for me, and I'm closing with this, I'm trying to close with this. (laughs) For me, the Sadducee is beyond hope, even though I know in my head they're not. And here's why I think they're beyond hope. They've heard the voice of God unfiltered from God in their ears. And they said, no. They saw God do God miracles, and they said no. For three and a half years, they have such knowledge, experiential knowledge, and they still said no. So I know people who've read the Bible, who've gone to Bible college, that were raised in the Christian life, and they're, they're saying no. In my mind, I'm like, I don't see how that can ever change. I, I can't see the way back. I don't really know anybody who's spent their whole life faking like they were a Christian and then went out and, and lived like the devil for the rest of their life. I, I know, right? They did. They did. And if they can get saved, your prodigal, my prodigals, anybody, if they can get saved, my friend, anyone can get saved. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I'll just thank you that it was a, a normal day in the congregation. Just loving God and loving one another, working things out, and it just got to these lost guys. Let us remember that, just to be who we are, go about our business, and let you shine, and that light will do the work in the darkness. But we do thank you, God, for all that we're learning through how you want your church to be, everything done decently and in order. Show us our part, God. We all have a part. And without that part, we're just not as strong as we could be. So we commit this time to you. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.